You know what you're listening to, right? Three, two, one. Uzima Health and Wellness. What the doctor say? Hi, Dr. Claude Bronson. How are you today? I am doing fine. How are you, Dr. Altman? I'm fine. Thank you so much for making time to speak to me for Uzima Health and Wellness. I know that you're very busy, so I do appreciate you carving out some time to talk to me. I've been asking you because, of course, Jackson, Mississippi is hot for a number of reasons. Not to put in a plug for P-Valley, but that was one of the things that happened this year, this series. But you all have a serious time right now. And I thought as a physician, uh, someone who you have mentored distinctly, that would be me, wanted to have an opportunity to offer you a time on this platform to talk about some some things in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, But I first want to let people know who you are. Uh, You are the president of the Mississippi State Medical Association. Executive director and CEO of it. Yes. Oh, let me let me let you say that again. Executive director, CEO of the Mississippi State Medical Association. I was the president of the Medical Association in 2015. And so you are the first black man to hold both positions. Yes. Okay. And you've had a lot of firsts in the state of uh, Mississippi when it comes to executive medicine. A lot of firsts. Yes. You've been advisor to the vice chancellor for the medical center. Yes. And some other firsts include the first African-American to lead an anesthesia department. Yes. That's how I know you. And you inspired (laughs) me to become an anesthesiologist. So, you know, I know your resume is very long, but I want to remind people that you have served your country. You've served your country well. You were also in the Navy, the United States Navy. I was. Uh, And I work uh, for the military, so I know what it means to say you worked yourself up from a Navy corpsman Uh and then became a physician and brought your talents to the University of Mississippi Medical Center for your whole career. And I did spend my entire medical career there. What that says to me is the dedication that you have, not only for medicine, but the uh, dedication that you have for the state and for healthcare for the people of Mississippi. So I can't think of anybody right now to interview that can uh, be an advocate, a better advocate for the state of Mississippi and this healthcare. Well, thank you. And let let me just start out by thanking you for allowing me to to come on your show. I'm so proud of you and all of your achievements and uh, the opportunity to sort of speak with you about some of the things that we're dealing with here in Jackson, whether it be our water crisis or healthcare in our area. Obviously, those sort of combined without good, clean water, you are going to have public health issues. And so they sort of intertwine there uh, appropriately. They do intertwine. But let's let's bring up something that put something out front that I don't see on the news cycle. And as a physician, you know, you all have to do more with less in the state of Mississippi. We always want to talk about the indices of Mississippi, but we need to, to, first of all, take our hats off to a state that has the wherewithal to continue to do more with less and provide good health care to the state of Mississippi patients and population. Tell us about the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Tell us, describe what you are for the state. The University of Mississippi Medical Center is the only academic uh, medical center in the state. Up until about um, 10 years ago, we were the only medical school in the state. About uh, a little less than 10 years ago, another medical school, an uh, osteopathic medical school, started down uh, uh, William Carey University uh, for Osteopathic Medicine. They have actually been doing a fantastic job. They put out a lot of primary care physicians for the state, which is what we need. And they've expanded their class size to 200 just recently. But at the university, we have a class size of about uh, 165 students. 
Mm -hmm. uh, we have all the different residency programs that any academic medical center would have. We are a tertiary level hospital with the only level one trauma center in the state. And we have a lot of services that don't exist anywhere else, such as our transplant program mm -hmm. and those high level services that you would expect to get at an academic medical center and a research center. That's basically what UMMC is. It's the only of its kind in our state. It's mm -hmm. a regional facility. We do some things uh, at the center better than a number of places around the country, such as our, our liver transplant programs. Some of those are nationally, internationally ranked. And so there are some things that we do and we do very well here in the state. University is a linchpin for healthcare in the state. What about cardiac care? I know that you have been recognized for not only just your, your clinical care for cardiac disease, but your research in cardiac disease. Yes. And, and in fact, at the University Medical Center, we do a lot from a cardiac standpoint. And in fact, I think you know that, that this medical school is known for its uh, textbook in physiology that actually mapped out the physiology of how the cardiovascular system works. Dr. Guyton was the uh, professor at the time that originally wrote that book and has gone through a number of mm -hmm. updates and revisions, but it's still published here from the University of Mississippi Medical Center in our Department of Physiology. We also have the Jackson Heart Study, which is the only study of its kind in the world. It's sort of the uh, Framingham study that we call sometimes, it's the Framingham study for African-Americans. That study started out a couple decades ago, and it is continuing to perform and enroll a number of uh, African-Americans from around the metropolitan area. There have been a number of offshoots of that study. There have been a lot of findings mm -hmm. specifically about African-American cardiovascular health, mm -hmm. sickle cell disease. Right. Uh, that have come out of that study because it is a cohort of African-Americans and it's looking specifically at African-American health, physiology, and, and, and how our systems work. And so uh, that has been a, a major study for us here. The findings have been published around the world. Right. Uh, it continues to do uh, great things and provide great health care and recommendations for health care and certainly scientific research. You know, I'm glad that you mentioned that it is, uh, I did a special on sickle cell awareness and I, I, I interviewed Dr. Courtney Fitzhugh who spoke of that study as well. And, you know, the issue of sickle cell and heart disease. So, you know, we definitely thank these researchers in Mississippi for their leadership and their pioneering research in heart disease. Has the research been affected or the school been affected because of COVID? And I know what the answer is, but I want you to outline some of these challenges during COVID, and then we'll go slowly to post-COVID. We, like uh, other health communities uh, around the country, were impacted seriously with COVID when the pandemic came, and we went through all the different cycles with it, uh, such as when we had a shutdown of the state and we we're all sort of sheltered in place trying to hide from the virus, as we, we say. But we partnered with the University of Mississippi Medical Center and the Mississippi State Department of Health, partnered very tightly and also partnered with the Mississippi State Medical Association to try and get out effective communications to physicians and citizens across our state. We actually developed uh, an only partnership of its kind that was in the country with the medical association sort of leading information going out to the public, but especially to physicians across the state. You'll recall that when the pandemic first hit, we had no treatment for it. We had no vaccine. All we could do is try and encourage folks to sort of do social distancing, wash your hands. You, you remember those sort of preventive things that we were doing because we, we had no other options. And that was with the idea that at some point in time, Mm -hmm. we would get a vaccine. 
And so we led that initiative mm. for the state health department through the medical association and partnering with the university medical center. Now, the university was under a lot of duress during that time. All of our hospitals were full of, of COVID patients. A lot of our rural states or a lot of our smaller hospitals cannot handle that level of severity in their patients. And we actually went through a triage process. We've done in the military. And let me thank you for your service. Uh, in a similar fashion to how we would do triage on the battlefield. And I think you, I understand you and, and, and many of your viewers and listeners under, understood what happened. Yes. But the university was the uh, a center that was receiving a lot of the most critical patients. And we ran out of beds. We were out of beds and we were out of ventilators a number of those days. And it was stressful on our system, stressful on our state. Mm-hmm. It was stressful on physicians. Yes. And I used to remind people all the time, with physicians seeing this amount of death, we were not trained and we were not accustomed to seeing this many patients die on us. That is totally contrary to our training, to our professionalism, how we think of ourselves. For a number of days, a lot of months, all we could do was provide comfort care and then triage people that we thought could make it and do those things that physicians do. But um, you, you, you remember that, uh, and that was hard on physicians, and we obviously experienced a lot of burnout. We saw a lot of our colleagues get sick. We yeah. saw a number of them die. Um, but universities stepped up and tried to provide guidance to and physicians policy. outside yeah. and policy to at least make it as palatable as, as we could to try to help get us in the state through it. Well, let me say what's important here. You are not the only medical system burden. You know, people say, oh, well, what was it? You got uh, around the nation all points of bulletin in terms of the burden of that, you know, period. Detroit, Michigan, they expressed that. You had surely hospitals out west uh, that take care of, you know, your L.A. County, your, your public health infrastructure, large hospital systems. Kaiser even had to step up and review policies as we're facing burnout and people uh, dying. We just want to be clear, Florida had its uh, burden of the disease. So we want to make sure that people don't say, oh, Jackson had it, had something different. You know, we as a right. nation, we were all experiencing this. And again, you had to, as a person, a physician in executive medicine, figure out what's best for the physicians and what's best for your care providers and work with getting personal protection, putting things in place. And then, of course, finally, uh, we get a reprieve with the vaccine. And what do we see in, in Jackson, Mississippi? What happened on the news? What I remember seeing in headlines was the hesitancy, needing a more patient population, and the glaring headline that your obstetricians had to come out and encourage pregnant women to become vaccinated. I remember that being on, I think, PBS even, that women who were pregnant in Jackson, Mississippi, and in the state of Mississippi, were dying at a higher rate. Tell us about what that was like in terms of understanding that and and saying this call to action to get Uh pregnant women in Mississippi vaccinated. I actually got appointed to the governor's task force on um, for COVID and how we're going to manage it uh, across the state. And so when the vaccine came out, it was always this thought about, well, there's going to be hesitancy because of the history of of Blacks being mistreated, the Tuskegee experiment and and all those uh, sorts of things. And so when the vaccine came out and it was available and uh, the way we were rolling it out with the health department uh, and the health department being under the governor's office, but we were working with them to roll out the vaccine. And some of those early reports showed that Blacks were getting access to the vaccine at a lesser rate than our white counterparts. And that was something that we had to, mm-hmm. had to address. 
we actually started having conversations with the governor and with the Department of Health about that. What we found out is it wasn't hesitancy, but that was not the primary thing. It was lack of access to the vaccine. Right. Because one of the things when we rolled it out, we had a system where you could go online and sign up to get the vaccine. You remember we had the categories, elderly, healthcare. Well, we're a rural state and we have some poor people. A lot of them didn't have computers. Mm -hmm. A lot of them didn't have a broadband internet. So they didn't have speed to sort of get them on and let them get an appointment. And so we worked with the health department and the governor and we said, and then we actually started some of these drive-through vaccinations. Mm -hmm. And they were set up in places that a lot of impoverished, certainly black people and rural black folks couldn't get to. And so we worked with the health department and went to them and said, look, we need to work with the pastors and the physicians, the black physicians that these folks have a relationship with. And we started setting up vaccination sites in areas that they traditionally will visit. They'll mm-hmm. go to their church. They go to their local physicians' offices and, and all. And so we started setting up vaccination sites in those areas. And what we found out was we then got uh, a lot of Blacks coming through there. We set them up in FQHCs. Mm-hmm. And we ended up going from being the worst in the country for getting uh, African-Americans vaccinated mm-hmm. to the best percentage-wise for the population. Mm-hmm. We went from worst to first. Mm-hmm. And for a, um, a week or two, on a couple of different occasions, we had the best rate for getting African-Americans vaccinated in the country. Now, overall, our total numbers were low. Mm-hmm. Oh, across right. the spectrum. But as a percentage of those who got vaccinated, African-Americans rose to the top percentage-wise uh, here in our state. And it was all based on the concerted effort that we did, mm-hmm. working with physicians, uh, physicians and leaders in the Black community, pastors, uh, and reaching out to um, those folks that, that African-Americans trust, mm-hmm. and then putting the vaccine in the area where they could actually get to it. I'm going to ask you one specific question. The PBS... Was that true, though, that you were facing a crisis, a maternal health crisis due to the lack of the vaccine? Was that a accurate reporting or you felt like it was overinflated? That was accurate. We did not have, we had access. We had, we had, we had made it so that our, our patients could get access to it, our, our Black mothers could get access to the vaccine. They, like a lot of pregnant mothers, were afraid to take the vaccine. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and that was across the board, but it was certainly an issue here for us. And so we started seeing our ICUs fill up with pregnant women who had not been vaccinated. Okay. So that was that was actually accurate, but it wasn't because there mm-hmm. wasn't access. We had just not convinced them that the vaccine was going to be safe for them and their babies. We also had the same problem with women of childbearing age. Mm -hmm. And so we did a specific campaign for that population to say that you need to uh, get vaccinated. And we saw in our ICUs, it was only the unvaccinated mothers who were dying. And we had our OBs having to do emergency C-sections to get the baby out because we couldn't save the mother. So it was a pretty horrendous time in our OB critical care units. So, you know, some of the information that, you know, came up to from your your situation with the moms, you know, actually had encouraged the American College of OB Obstetrician and Gynecologists to issue a statement uh-huh. that, oh, obstetricians, please encourage women to get vaccinated who are pregnant. So that was a, a very scary time after COVID. So I'm going to tell you something that I read recently about one of the challenges, and that's the birth center that the burn center has taken the only burn center for the state of Mississippi is now looking at closure. Is that correct? That is correct. We have had, our, our original burn center was located in a 
fairly large but rural health system. Mm-hmm. And it closed a couple of decades ago. And then we were looking for places to put it. There was suggestions from the legislature that the University Medical Center could take it, but it didn't come within its funding. And you may know that running burn centers are, are a fairly expensive uh, endeavor. So we kept looking around and we found in what was what is now the Merit Health System, mm-hmm. uh, a hospital where they started the burn center. Well, it has had the same sort of issues about having enough funding, uh, especially now with hospital funding being in crisis, basically, but being able to afford to keep the burn center open. And so that burn center is closing and we will have to start sending our burn patients out of the state, probably to Georgia, which is a, um, a relationship that we had before we opened the Merritt Burn Center. So the Merritt Burn Center was a public privatization of a piece of the university? No, it was in a, in a, in a private health system that had relationship uh, with, with the university. In fact, one of the university's former professors, plastic surgeon, actually went there to lead that burn center. What I'm building up to is that, you know, as we talk about the water crisis, which is, is the next major topic, hospitals need water. You need water yes, for babies to be born, born. You need water for, as a tertiary center, uh, for the state, a level one trauma center. Uh, you have traumas. Gun yeah. boxes up. Uh, I do believe you need water for that. And you need water to take care of children. And another big article I read, the crisis has affected kidney disease centers, your dialysis centers. And that's a major part of of health disparity in the Black community. Uh, You have heart disease. We know we talk about obesity. We also know from COVID that Black patients that had renal failure or had uh, that, that COVID could affect the kidneys. Uh, hence, the patient would need dialysis. I had a cousin that actually ended up being young, but it came and affected her kidneys uh, when she got COVID. And that was a different presentation. Total kidney shutdown. Uh-huh. Tell us now, in terms of now, we have a water crisis. That phone call I got was from someone evacuating from Florida because I'm very concerned about family that are in the way of the hurricane. And so flooding, and now we have a water crisis. This is where we are now. So the conversations are leading with lawsuits. The conversations are leading with EPA. The conversations are leading with statements to and from Mayor Chukwe Lamamba, uh, who I think uh, has a long history of being in the state since I think he said he was five years old. He remembers a freeze that happened when they moved there and a water crisis at five. He remembers that. So that's how they're leading the conversation. And, and, and what I wanted to do was lead with the fact that your medical center, where is it in relation to this crisis? And uh, what are we doing? Well, thank you for, um, for bringing that topic up. It's obviously something that we have been in the news nationwide and, and worldwide. Basic clean water and sanitation are primary for what a government does. That's actually how we were able to improve civilization by mm-hmm. cleaning the water and, and dealing with, with sewage. And so to say that we're dealing with that in an American state and in the capital city in the United States here, it's just, it's just sad to even have this conversation. But as far as the University Medical Center and some of the other health systems in the metropolitan area here, Jackson has had difficulties with its water and sewer systems for for decades now, for various reasons. The university... You have been in Jackson, Mississippi since... Been here uh, since 1988, so more than 30 years. And it has had to deal with with that, and we can talk about a number of different reasons uh, for that. But the University of Mississippi Medical Center has its own well system. Uh, and it has for a long time, so that it is not impacted okay. with the city's water. 
the system goes down. Now, we do have outlying clinics, and one of the clinics is the Jackson Medical Mall where we do dialysis at, and that system was affected. So what we do in those circumstances, we bring all those patients back from the outlying clinics that are dependent on the city's water system, we bring them back over to the university proper where we have well have a well system. Now, most all of the hospitals in the metropolitan area, except one, have their own well systems. You got to remember, we've been dealing with this for some time now. Mm-hmm. And there's one Merritt Hospital, actually the one where the burn center was, that is not on its own well water yet, but they're planning to do so. Okay. Now, I believe that with everything that has gone on and brought this national attention to us and with the federal government uh, stepping in, that we will get a long-term fix finally. But our health delivery system has had to make sure that it could stand up on its own when these issues occurred so that we could continue to take care of patients. And because of that, most of them have built their own well systems and they can continue to carry on uh, providing uh, healthcare services in these crises. Okay, so you're saying, which is what is not being said, is, is this is the reason why families are saying they want to sue because of the health implications, potentially that my child may have gotten a lot of some lead water, um, what have you. And what you're saying is that uh, the medical center in itself is providing safe water to families and patients that are, are, are workers even. You know, right. you all are one of the largest employers of the state of Mississippi. And so, so that's something to, to emphasize. Are, are employees able to get water even if they come, they work in Mississippi and then they leave? Are they able, Are you a water distribution site within the hospital? Our employees can get water, but we've, we've actually had so many uh, people around the country and, and around the world that's provided us and sent us water in that we've not had an issue with being able to provide water to folks who, uh, who need it, including folks who are at university. Obviously, some of our employees, they work at the university, but they live out in Jackson, right, right. so they have the same issue with when they're home with bathing and mm-hmm. brushing their teeth and, and drinking water. And so, we, yeah, so and we, we supply bottled water to them also, and obviously they can come back over to the medical center in their workplace and get water if, if, if they need that. But that's how we have been trying to, to deal with that. And we actually here at the Medical Association, also the health department and the, and the University Medical Center have all been part of a water distribution system okay. with getting water in. We were contacted by a large bottled water distributor out of New York about three weeks ago. Okay to bring, bring down um, 10 truckloads, mm-hmm. tractor trailer truckloads of uh, water. And we set up uh, some distribution sites. And uh, I thought that was a lot of water and it was going to take us a while to, to get rid of it. But uh, <laughs> no. it, uh, it, we, we were out of it two hours ahead of what we thought our scheduled time to be out would be. Okay. So let me ask you this. So when we're looking at these areas that are affected, can you give me a geographical understanding of where this is? You Are you fine? I live in a suburb outside of the city. Okay. And so we, we were, were not affected. Yeah. Interestingly enough, that for the past couple of years that we've been dealing with this, and certainly for the past couple of months, when in the last month when the system totally failed, there were portions of the city that still got water, had enough pressure. There were other areas of the city, and it became a majority of the city in the last month that had low water pressure. But it has been sort of variable, and if you lived in certain sections of the city, you had enough pressure to have water coming out of your faucets, you were probably still uh, on some boil water alerts, but at least you did have running water. Let me ask you, as a longtime citizen of Jackson, Mississippi, 
do the lawsuits help? I think that they don't hurt. I think I think that the, the thing behind them are to make sure that elected leaders understand and, and do their jobs. And those folks who are suing, I, I don't guess I would say I'm a, a, an advocate for lawsuits and all, but if it's something that will get the attention of people and see if, in fact, anybody has been harmed, then if it can help that way, then fine. The city government has a responsibility to provide clean drinking mm-hmm. water and sewage services. That's what they're elected to do. Mm-hmm. Now, there have been a number of things as far as how the state has treated uh, city government, but even, and so there's enough blame to go around. That yeah. I believe has been uh, structural racism for the past several decades. But we have elected leaders who know that, and, and their job is to find solutions. And so I think the citizens now are saying, you're all to blame. You need to get together, mm-hmm. fix whatever the issues need to be fixed, find solutions, do your job, mm-hmm. and get these Americans, these citizens of America and of the state, get them the clean drinking water that they need. And uh, the time for excuses are long past. In terms of going back to the healthcare system, I think that you'll see some things that were needed to, that were done in Michigan. You had pediatricians looking for certain signs of uh, lead poisoning or certain signs of even, I don't know, dehydration, malnourishment. That's something that really long-term, I think the medical center could say that they are going to have to add to one of its list of duties. Is that true? Yeah, yeah that's true. And, I, and one thing that I'm very proud of is, is our Mississippi chapter, the American Academy of Pediatrics, have been very involved in this since its outset with uh, making recommendations um, across the state about children when COVID was and, and all that. But certainly as this water crisis has evolved, they have stepped up along with the University Medical Center and sounding the alarm about what these pay, what people need to do and about how they need to make sure that the children are not drinking the water and the checks that, that need to be done. And so I'm proud of how well, certainly that specialty organization in our, our state and how the University Medical Center uh, and the Department of Pediatrics here have done their job with making sure that they're getting the information out that parents need to know about to make sure that they're protecting their children. The one thing that's been in the news something that also highlighted Jackson, Mississippi, even before COVID was uh, the arrival of Deion Sanders. And you are very much uh, invested in the uh, success of the university as well. I mean, really, you are, I like to say, you, you are Dr. Dr. Jackson, <laughs> Mississippi. Uh, if there's anything going on in the state, you know about it. You have your advice and you are sought out for your advice uh, and leadership in different areas, not just medicine, education, politics. So can you uh, update us on what is happening to Jackson State, uh, Jackson State University? I'm sorry, GSU. (laughs) You know, I I don't throw this term around lightly, but uh, Deion Sanders has been a game changer here in our state and in this metropolitan area and for Jackson State University. He has brought a a level of professionalism and Mm can-do and expectation for what can happen at Jackson State University. They now have good leadership that's over there that he can work with and partner with. And Jackson State is uh, moving not only the city forward, not only the university forward, but our state forward. Now, one of the things that they had that first game that was scheduled, home game that was scheduled during this water crisis. And he had to move the team to some areas outside because they had no drinkable water or right. water pressure in the, at, at the school in, in their dorms. 
And he actually managed that very well. And he made some statements about the expectation for a university uh, such as JSU and all the other colleges in the city about what the expectation should be for an educational institution that's training young men and for him um, bringing up these young men about minimum expectations that ought to be afforded that the city and the state should take care of so that they can do their jobs over there. And he has listened to state elected leaders, uh, uh, city leaders, We'll all listen to him because he's uh, he's got that stamina, he's mm-hmm. earned it, and he's doing great things for Jackson State University. JSU is on the map. Mm-hmm. He is going to produce some very high-quality young men who will go off. Uh, some may have NFL careers, uh, but the ones uh, who may not have that path will be better men than they would have been without having uh, uh, interacted, I believe, with Coach Prime. Well, let me just say this. You know, people think about football players. Let me tell you that some of these football players may be the next future doctor. Yes. State. What he has done is fostered a very intellectual football environment, one that is caring and one that, given the crisis of COVID, uh, the water crisis, that they can come out compassionate about leading uh, when they get out in terms of healthcare, politics, finance. You know, you, you have to have that somewhere. Someone put it in your brain that this there's more to do than just what you're doing. And I think that's also what you have brought to the state. I can do this, but I can also do more. You've evolved to be this person that's leading healthcare in Jackson, Mississippi, and all around the state. Uh, and again, um, hats off to Dion, hats off to LaMamba, I, the mayor. I, I think that, again, I see him getting spoken to aggressively about his leadership and questioned to about what you just alluded to, years and years of racial and uh, disparities. Uh, both infrastructurally and in the healthcare. What is it that we need to know, you know, on this platform, pushing it out, what is it that you want people to know about Jackson, Mississippi and this water crisis and healthcare? What I think I want you and your viewers to know is that Jackson in the metropolitan area is on the rebound. We've got the attention of the people now who can provide solutions and resources. And the expectation is that those leaders in the state will work together to get it done. Federal government is going to provide the oversight that it needs to provide to make sure that we're compliant with Clean Water Act and all those things that American citizens are expected. And it is required that cities and states deliver to them. And then we have our Congressman Benny Thompson, who has been spectacular. Right. 20 million. 20 million. Yes. Yeah. Okay. He has, he has risen to the occasion as he does for so many different things to bring the resources here from the federal government, provide the oversight and the assistance that's giving us reassurance that this time things may be different and we may be looking at a real long-term standing solution mm-hmm. to this issue. Because again, these citizens don't deserve this. They're paying their bills for the water and the sewage. And they need to be getting what they're paid for and, and leaders need to do what they're elected to do. But I think that that's going to happen. And I think we got an immediate fix. Mm-hmm. We got a, a temporary fix. Uh, the, the permanent fix is in the planning phases. And I believe we've got what uh, needs to be in place as far as making sure that we get to where we need to get to, that we can have sustainable, reliable, clean drinking water for our citizens. And I know that you're saying that the healthcare center in itself is not affected, but again, as the large, one of the largest employers of the state, anybody that could be employed by the hospital 
could be affected. And, you know, we want, so you, you do have a vested interest in this uh, conversation as well. So yeah. I'm sure that our, your employees and people are dedicating their lives to healthcare in the state of Mississippi are taken care of. And so with that, you know, I just really want to thank you for making time. I do want a part two. I will welcome Prime Time and uh, Mayor uh, Lamamba to the platform to just kind of talk about some other angle that they feel like needs to be illuminated. You've had my promise to talk about Jackson, Mississippi, the healthcare at the UMMC and, you know, the future of, of medicine of, of the state. So I think that's important and I'm going to continue to uh, bug you. <laughs> So thank you so much, Dr. Brunson. I appreciate you from the bottom of my heart. I appreciate your service and your leadership. Thank you. And thank you for all that you're doing to bring attention to these situations. And therefore, you're helping with the solution. What did the doctor say?